Good morning and shalom, you all. It's fun to be with you uh, again and uh, was really a privilege to have the team from Wayside visiting with us uh, the other month. I bring you greetings from the church in Israel, not just from the Bible College and Seminary, but also from the various churches that uh, know that Cece and Eden and I are with you. You know, the um, most neglected portion of Scripture around the world, and most churches around the world, are the five books of Moses, from Genesis to Deuteronomy. Uh, that's really the, the actual meaning when the word Torah comes about, the primary meaning is referring to that portion of Scripture. Actually, it's also used in the New Testament to talk about all the Hebrew Scripture. But when I use the word Torah this morning, I'm talking about the five books of Moses. Now, um, you know, we, we, we read in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 that all of God's Word was given to us for instruction, for equipping, for encouraging, for uh, uh, teaching us His ways. And so today, I want to take a look. First of all, I want to encourage all of you, if you haven't, to study the Torah, to study the five books of Moses. And you know, the five books of Moses, many times people think it's a law book with a little bit of stories. But actually, it's a story with a little bit of laws. And why is that important? Because if it's a story, then the author has actually a purpose and a meaning in telling us that story. And this is why we read in Romans 10.10 that the Apostle Paul is telling us that Christ himself is the purpose of the Torah. And um, this morning, I want to take a look at a particular portion of Scripture from the book of Exodus. It's a large portion, and uh, we're not going to look at we're not going to do an exegesis of it because it's 16 chapters. Exodus 25 until Exodus 40. And this whole section is talking about the tabernacle. You know, the tabernacle, that tent of meeting that God instructed Moses to instruct the Israelites to, um, to erect in the desert about three months after the exodus from Egypt. And uh, as we'll see, this portion as well, as a sample, is not only whispering, it's not only telling, it's actually shouting about the Messiah. And uh, I believe that what we'll see will also challenge us for, in, in a way that is relevant for this missions week. And uh, just a really a word, Cece and I and our daughter Eden have been just so blessed the last several days to meet the various missionaries and hear on how God is using them and here actually learn a little more about the heritage that Waysai has in supporting, sending, praying with missionaries around the world. So as we get to these passages in, um, in the book of Exodus, Moses is on the mountain with God for 80 days. You know, Moses, by the way, is 80-some at that age. In the previous chapters, we see him going up and down the mountain. You know, it's a pretty big mountain. Mo Moses must be in, in really good shape. 
But overall here, he's 80 days with the Lord. There's a physical thing that happens to him. His face are shining. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, but that's what happened physically. But spiritually, and this is more important, what happens to Moses is that God is revealing to him incredible transformational revelation about himself. Now, many times we, 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 you know, we take the, the half verse that says, we no longer under law, but under grace, to misunderstand that whatever is said in the books of the law, in the Torah, is obsolete and is not important. And if we understand it this way, we are missing out. Because at the time, at the time when the Mosaic Covenant was given, when God was revealing to Moses this great revelation in the Mosaic Covenant, it was nothing less than transformational, incredible, amazing revelation. For the first time in human history, God has established a system, a system with humans whereby there is atonement for sins and whereby God himself, the maker of the universe, is coming to dwell among his people. And so, um, you know, one expression, Moses is there on the mountain. We, know, we don't know exactly what he's seen. But in those 16 chapters, the expression that is repeated mostly is the one that I've quoted here. God is talking to Moses and saying, And see that you make them, all the details of the tabernacle, after the pattern for them, which is being shown to you on the mountain. So those 16 chapters, if you take a look at them, after the, when you get home, many, 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 many minute details. Actually, it's the biggest portion of Scripture talking about any sort of structure in all of Scripture, in all the Bible. Even Solomon's first temple does not get that volume of Scripture. Certainly, Ezekiel's third temple, the future temple, does not get, get nine chapters, not 16. So God wants to teach us something if he's spending all this space. And we want to ask three questions today about the tabernacle. And these are, why? Why is God telling, out all, t- telling us all this? And why is it important for us today? That's the first question. The second question is, how are they going to do it? It's a huge project, as we'll see. How are they going to do it? You know, a nation of slaves, three months after 400 400 years of slavery, in the middle of the Sinai Desert. How are they going to do it? And the last question, the third question is, who's going to do it? So, with God's grace, we'll see that the answers to these questions are very relevant for us today, particularly in the context of mission and reaching all the nations for the kingdom of God. So the first question is, what is the tabernacle supposed to teach us? Now, I'll jump into the answer for time's sake. And the answer is, God is trying to translate divine reality into human terms so that we may understand him. Let me, let me expound on that just a little bit. You know, um, thinking about that. Why did God need to make his revelation to us so gradual? In other words, why after the fall, we don't have Genesis chapter 3 and right away Matthew chapter 1? 
why do we have to have several dozen books, 4,000 years of history, the Mosaic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, and only then the New Covenant? Why? The answer is simple. As humans, we cannot understand divine reality all at once. He had to bring it to us little by little so that we can digest and understand this. So, you know, in Solomon's words, when Solomon uh, dedicated the first temple, we read about it in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 27. Solomon is praying, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. So the tabernacle and the temple after that are not an end in and of itself. It's a means to an end to translate to us that God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth, desires, he does not need to, he desires because he loves us to come and dwell not only among us, but ultimately within us. And so really the story of the tabernacle tells us the purpose is nothing less than Christ himself. Okay, the tabernacle is a preparation for us to be ready to receive the completed revelation, divine revelation, which is nothing less than Jesus, the Messiah himself. And you know, uh, in John chapter 2, we read when Jesus and the disciples were walking in Jerusalem and they were seeing the second temple. That's the temple that was dedicated in the days of Haggai and Zechariah, the prophets. And the Herod the Great renovated for 46 years. It was considered one of the wonders of the ancient world, like Solomon Temple before it. And so the disciples and the Lord are walking there and the disciples telling Jesus, look at this, Lord, look at this you know, magnificent structure that our people have built for the living God. And what was the Lord's response? In John chapter 2, Jesus has answered them. And he say, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He was speaking about the temple of his body. Essentially, Jesus was saying, you're not getting it. You're not getting it. All of this has a purpose. And the purpose is to tell you that I am. That Jesus is the incarnation of God himself coming to dwell on this earth among us so that God himself can dwell within us. And uh, we read in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. That when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So God did not come to dwell in made men-made palaces, but ultimately in the embodiment of his son. Now, there's another thing that all these great details, it's another important purpose that all these details about, of the tabernacle are given to us. And that is that there is a master plan and there is a master. In other words, God tells us, I have a specific, specific, specific plan for my kingdom. And if you're like me, my natural tendency, probably a human tendency for most of us, is first to plan something 
and then to ask God to bless it. And God says, no need to do that. I actually have a very, very, very specific plan. What I want you to do is to follow it. And so um, nothing is incidental in God's kingdom. And that is the lesson from the tabernacle. Now, you know, uh, again, we'll see. I want to read a few verses from uh, uh, Exodus 25, verses 1 and 2. And God calls the Israelites, he allows the Israelites to participate in, in the building, in the offering for the building of the tabernacle. And I think a good question to ask is, why? If God wants to do something, if he wants to accomplish something, what does he need to do? Does he need to, does he need to ask us to do it? He doesn't, actually. What does he need to do? Just need to speak it out. And it's done. Okay, so, but however, that's not what he chooses to do many, many times. And we want to answer why, but let's read verses 1 and 2 from Exodus 25. Great lessons here for us. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel, that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. I'm going to try and do a little bit of exposition on this because this is important. The translation, it's, it's a good translation, but it misses out some of the um, important intricacies that are in the Hebrew. Mathematically speaking, okay, well, before the mathematics, let me just say this. The word in Hebrew for offering comes from the same root as to lift up. So when we offer something to the Lord, we're lifting it up to him. Um, now, mathematically speaking, if I have $100 and I raise an offering of $50, mathematically speaking, I only have left $50. Is it more or less than what I had before? Mathematically speaking, it's less than what I had before. But notice what God is saying. He says that they take for me an offering. Now, that's even more strange in Hebrew than it, it's here in the translation. Because you take an offering, what do you do to an offering? You, you think about it as giving an offering. But God is saying, no, no, actually, it's not mathematical. When you raise an offering for God's kingdom, you took a blessing. You didn't give a blessing. This is what God is saying here. So there's the mathematical reality. I have $50. is less than 100 I had before. But God says there is a spiritual reality. And in the spiritual reality, when I raise an offering, I'm taking. I'm not giving. I'm taking. This is what this passage is teaching us. And uh, by the way, God does not come up with a fundraising plan. And certainly no way to manipulate anybody. He says, each one can raise that offering and take that offering from the generosity of his heart. As much as his heart leads him to do that. Remember that. We're going to come back to that in a little bit to see how the Israelites responded. But carrying on, just uh, again, very, very briefly, this is not, a, uh, is not a word about, particularly about offering, but just very importantly, God does not need our generosity. He's the owner of the heaven and the earth and everything that is in them. Whatever we have, we've received from him for a particular purpose. And he certainly does not need the, the contributions of the Israelis at that, at that time or us 
So why does he giving us the possibility to participate and give? By the way, you know, when, when an offering, when we raise an offering, we tend to think about it in financial terms. But that's, not, that's actually the easiest way of raising an offering. And it tells something about our heart, the way we raise the offering. But it's not just financial means or property. It's time, it's prayer, it's attention. So it's sometimes much harder to give than, you know, write a check or give away something that we have. So the reason that God's letting us to participate, let the Israelites and let, letting us, is for us. To allow us to partake, participate in his kingdom. He does not need us. It's for us. Now, uh, moving on, very briefly, still in Exodus 25, what could the Israelites give? I want to go over this pretty quickly uh, because it's going to become important how they're going to do it. But notice here, what, they were, why, what could they offer as an offering. So here it is. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. God is telling Moses. Gold, silver, and bronze, which are precious metals. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linens, goat's hair. And these are various types of linens and threads uh, and wool, etc. Tanned ramskins, goatskins. Uh, the ramskin, after it was processed, was colored in a reddish kind of color. And the word that is translated here as goatskin is actually a very unusual uh, Hebrew word. And actually, it's not goatskin as in you know regular goats. It's um, actually a a uh, a sea a mammal a mammal that is living in the sea in the Red Sea. It's kind of unique to that area. And the Bedouins in the Sinai Desert, uh, because it has a very very strong skin or rough skin, they use that, it, the Hebrew word is tachash, you can get a kick out of, of that maybe, but the sound of it, but um, they make soles for their shoes because it's a very rough skin. So anyway, that's that. Um, acacia wood, these are, that, that's the wood that is found in the Sinai um, desert. Oil for the lamps, not for eating, but for lamps. Spices for the anointing oil and for the frag- and fragrant, excuse me, the fragrant incense. So this is the oil that is mixed with uh, various fragrance that you, uh, that the Israelites were supposed to put on the uh, tent of meeting and all the fans and all the utensils to purify them to the Lord. Onyx stones and stones for, uh, for setting, for the ephod, and for the breastplate. These are precious stones, and there's a whole variety of them, for the clothes of the high priest. It's symbolic for many different things. So, God's given the opportunity to give, to take, really, but, you know, to raise an offering. And the question, I think, is begged to be asked is, where are those nation of slaves that just came out of Egypt three months ago supposed to bring all these things from in the Sinai Desert? You know, uh, the Sinai Desert is very dry. There's not a lot of things there. And we find the answer kind of going back in Exodus 11 and 12 before the actual exodus took place. And we read in Exodus 11, verses 2 and 3, the Lord is talking to Moses here. 
and says, Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And again in Exodus 12, 35, 36, the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord has given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Now, the, the actual word in Hebrew for plundered, I think plundered gets a little bit of it, but it's almost like used them. Almost a little bit of abused them, a little bit. And, you know, God, it's really, in a sense, out of character to God. So, and we said that God actually said to do it. And the question is, why? And the reason is, of course, that God hates it when a worker does not pay for his work. And the Israelites have been, you know, enslaved for 400 years. So all of a sudden, this great wealth was given them just before the exodus as a compensation and as a means to building God's tabernacle, God's dwelling place among his nation. So that's where the Israelites had all this stuff. But I think another question is, it's very interesting to look. Remember, God said, give each one from the generosity of his or her heart. And how did the Israelites respond? Take a look. Exodus 36, verses 3 to 6. And they, this is the, the workers on the tabernacle, received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They, this is the Israelites here, still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning. I'm going to pause here for just a second. The Hebrew says they kept bringing from the generosity of their heart in the morning, in the morning. The word morning repeats twice. So it's almost like, I don't know if you had that experience, I'm, I'm sure many of you did, that the Lord tells you to do something and you simply cannot sleep. I mean, you toss and turn all night and soon as, you know, the day begins, you run to do it. And that's the kind of picture that is portrayed for us here. That the people responded and basically out of the generosity of their heart just ran to bring more and more and more. So that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, The people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. In other words, the workers were coming to Moses saying, Moses, it's too much. I mean, look at those piles. So Moses gave command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing. Well, you know, generosity is part of the fruit of the Spirit. We have a generous Father. I think many, many times we think that what is given to us as stewards, our salary, our property, it's given to us as stewards. But we tend to think about it, you know, I've earned it. It's mine. God says, everything that you have, 
I've given you for a purpose. For a purpose. And again, I'm not just talking about financial means and properties, our time, our talents, our attention, our care, our love. So here, the reaction was people are bringing more and more and more until Moses had to say, just stop. It's too much. It's too much. And may this be the attitude of our hearts. So that's where they had all the stuff. We have piles, and I mean piles of gold and silver, precious metals, precious uh, linens, uh, precious stones, wood. Everything was there in, in huge piles. But, and, and God, you know, describes in detail the master plan. What should be built? You know, the yard, the fans, the altar, the, the uh, ark itself, uh, the menorah, the golden lamp, everything. But in great detail. But you have to have someone that can translate that into some sort of a drawing and actually do it. You know, if you're like me, I look at those drawings. I mean, I look at those instructions. And uh, first of all, it's confusing for me. I don't really understand it. And two, I just want to see the final result. I mean, I don't really care about the process. That's just how I'm wired. Now, thankfully, there are people... Uh, Rick is an architect. I know there's at least one other architect here. They do understand drawings. They do understand structure. They do understand that kind of processes. So take a look in terms of who can do such a work. Exodus 31, verses 1 to 6. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name, I have called by name, Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hu, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aheliav, the son of Achisamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they might all, sorry, that they may make all that I have commanded you. God called them by name. Now, I'm trying to think of, you know, of uh, Bezalel and uh, uh, Heliav and all those, you know, people that God has called by name. Let, let's try to think about them. Again, they were slaves for many, many, many years. And I'm thinking of Bezalel, this is completely speculative. But, um, you know, as a boy, he was probably working with the rest of the Israelites on building the incredible structures that the ancient Egyptians were building, you know, like the pyramids and other stuff. And um, maybe one day the chief architect had said, oh, I need a gopher. Uh, you kid, come here. So this was Bezalel. What did he know? And he was the gopher kid for the architect. And he was there with the Egyptians' architects looking, when they were looking at the, at the drawings. And maybe he learned something. But maybe after a little while... He threw him out. He treated him really badly. And he threw him out and he became uh, a helper for a goldsmith. And then later on, he threw him out and he was a helper for um, a guy that works with wood, a carpenter. And so on and so on. And Bezalel may have not understood, why am I being moved around? Why can I have a little bit of peace and quiet? Why are all those bad experiences are taking place? You know, and at that moment, God says, I called you by name. Now, let me let me... Translate that a little bit to our reality. You know, m m today, 
we have many, many, many other opportunities for training. Training in, in trade, in, in the various things and talents and gifts that God has given us. And also training in God's word. And we are stewards over those things that God has given us. Our spiritual gifts, our natural talents, our time. And God expects us to develop them as well. You know, a I, I, big part of what I do is education. I believe in education. And uh, in training others for the kingdom of God. But the point is, notice here that not all people were Bezalel. There were those that maybe God gave more favor in asking for the Egyptians. And they had more gold, silver, precious stones, precious metals, etc., etc. So maybe their gift was to give more. Other people may have the gift of serving. So they were, you know, as Bezalel and Eliav and the rest of the craftsmen were working. They were making meals for them. They were bringing water for them. They were, uh, you know, just workers. You know, bring, take this from here, put it there. Etc., etc. Paul, the apostle, is talking about it in New Testament language as the body of Christ. You know, not all of us are a mouth, not all of us are hands. Some of us are internal organs. But Paul is saying, actually, the internal organs, in many, many ways, are more important. And uh, the kingdom of God is unique, it does something that no one else and nothing else in creation does the kingdom of god takes our time our care our finances our property and when we raise it up as an offering for the kingdom of god all of this translates into souls human souls that come to know the living god as i mentioned briefly i was cc and i were greatly blessed to hear some of the stories of people serving unreached people groups. People that have never, ever heard the gospel of the Messiah. They have no, no chance, really, except for those people that are coming and sharing with them. And for, for you, everyone at Wayside, for you to partake in that, you pray for them, you write them emails, you provide care for them, you send them financial help. That is translated into souls only in the kingdom of God. Now, by the way, we mentioned previously the God's, God's uh, master plan. God's master plan, and I'm not shocking you, has always been, still is, the salvation of all of humanity. That has always been the plan, never changed. There have just been different phases in it. And this is where we are now. And everything that is given us, our time, our talents, our gifts, our finances, our property, whatever this may be, everything is geared towards that purpose. Everything. That's the plan. Everything has to do with that plan. Now, sometimes we, you know, we have free will. We may not always want to dedicate everything towards that. And that's our choice. But this is God's unchanging plan. So, to summarize, to bring it all together, very briefly... What does all that mean for us today? So the tabernacle we saw as a preparation for God's complete revelation on this earth for the Messiah, Jesus himself. 
Christ is the purpose of the tabernacle. Another thing that we've seen is all the details, all the space that God spends, you know, those 16 chapters, is to instruct us that He has a plan. And our role is to seek His face and His plan and not our own. How can we partake in God's work? God provides the means for His work through His people. Not because he has to, but because he wants to give us the possibility to partake in this great kingdom work. And who can do the work? Once again, it's us. And God calls by name each one of us to our part in the body of Christ. So my prayer for us this morning is for all of us is that when we hear about a need in the body of Christ, when we hear of an unreached people group, when we hear of a possibility for missionaries to go and serve the Lord in sharing the gospel in places um, that, that are needed, that we will be like the Israelites on that day. That we will toss and turn all night. And first thing in the morning, it will burn on our heart, burning on our heart, to go and partake in what we do. Now, uh, I didn't say anything about, or not much, Rick gave a very generous and, and kind introduction to some of what we do in Israel and how we try to apply that in Israel. When I was here last May, I told you a little more that there is a revival going on in Israel, um, really something that has not been seen since the times of the New Testament in 2,000 years, where a growing, dramatically growing group of Jewish people and Arabic people becoming disciples of Christ and serving God together. So I will close for now and um, we'll show you a short video describing the work that we are doing. Um, as Rick was saying, and just to make a little bit of order in the various terms, our seminary and Bible college is called Israel College of the Bible. But because the ministry grew so much, we are now called One for Israel, and that kind of encompasses the various ministries with the training as the hub. So please watch that video and uh, join me in prayer or with Rick afterwards. Thank you. People today are full of questions, attempting to define who they are by how they look, how they speak, and what they believe. They struggle to explore themselves, searching for answers and will often find hope in the open arms of the world. Over the last 70 years, Israelis have been at the center of the struggle, hungry for meaning, asking questions and searching for answers. Many find joy in the comfort of the world, while others drown in the sorrow of disappointment. But some have found the answer in one name, Jesus or as we call him in Hebrew, Yeshua. One for Israel is an initiative of native-born Israelis who are on the forefront of high-tech evangelism, bringing salvation to Israel, raising up leaders and equipping them with the tools they need to transform their communities. And with an emphasis on winning souls, building disciples and sending leaders, we promote the kingdom of God to both Jews and Arabs throughout the land of Israel. In 1990, 
we launched the first Hebrew-speaking Bible college serving the growing body of believers in Israel. Starting with only a handful of students, our Bible college has now grown into a certified educational institution offering bachelor's and master's degree programs, bringing Jews and Arabs together in the classroom and experiencing peace and unity in the name of Yeshua. From our campus, located in central Israel, we work together to proclaim the gospel of the Messiah through websites, a radio station, a television studio, classroom instruction, and the largest Christian library in Israel. Training, equipping, and providing a platform for the gospel to go forth. Also in partnership with local authorities, we provide humanitarian aid to Holocaust survivors, caring for each and every generation with the love of Yeshua. Israel has always been on the cutting edge of internet technology, and with more Israelis online per capita than even the United States, Israel continues to be ripe for evangelism on the digital frontier. I, God, ex-Rabbi, The One, Isaiah 53, all these are tools and outlets provided by One for Israel so that Israelis can hear, receive, and grow in the knowledge of the Messiah. We want to promote the message of the gospel in the land of Israel through the cooperation of Christians worldwide. Together, we can care for, educate, and reach out to both Jews and Arabs in the land of Israel. As a native-born Israeli, who has experienced firsthand the transforming power of the gospel of the Messiah, I would like to invite you personally to extend a helping hand and become one for Israel.